Hello and welcome to Our American States, a podcast from the National Conference of State Legislatures. This podcast is all about legislatures, the people in them, the policies, process, and politics that shape them. I'm your host, Ed Smith. I've been a practicing physician since 1984, so I have obviously dealt with a lot of diabetic patients. Alec began rationing his insulin and he passed away at the age of 27, unable to afford a medication that he needed uh, to survive. That was Delegate Matthew Rohrbeck, a Republican from West Virginia, and Representative Michael Howard, a Democrat from Minnesota. They're my guests on the podcast. Diabetes is a major health challenge in the U.S. About 30 million Americans are diagnosed with diabetes, and the American Diabetes Association estimates several million more are undiagnosed. Millions of people with diabetes use insulin to control their condition, and the cost of insulin has been rising dramatically. In response, 19 states have implemented laws limiting the amount a health plan can charge a patient for insulin. Other states have created patient assistance programs or ensured payments made on behalf of a patient are applied solely to the patient's out-of-pocket costs. My guests on this podcast both carried legislation in their states to help patients afford their medication. They discussed the details of their legislation and the challenges in passing it. They also shared advice for other legislators who are working on the issue. Here's our discussion, starting with Delegate Rohrbeck. Delegate Rohrbeck, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I wonder to start if you could explain how you came to get involved in this issue of insulin affordability and describe the legislation in your state. Well, you know, I've been a practicing physician since 1984, so I have obviously dealt with a lot of diabetic patients. And as a gastroenterologist, I do see a lot of the complications of diabetes. It's a very important issue to me, and it always has been. Now, the legislation that we just passed, there's three parts to it. The first part was a cap on the cost sharing, otherwise known as copays, for insulin itself. Uh, we had a cap of $100. We lowered that to $35. Then the second part is we added to that two things. The first was a cap on supplies. So this would be continuous glucose monitors, glucometers, test strips, lancets, things of that nature. That cap is at $100 per month. And then the third thing we did is we added a cap on insulin pumps at $250 one time every two years. So if you lose the pump or, you know, whatever, it's you're, you're on your own if the two years hasn't expired. That's between you and the insurance company. As you mentioned, you're a physician. You've had a lot of patients with diabetes. How has the landscape changed in terms of the cost of insulin and these other materials since you started your practice in 1984? Oh, gosh. Well, the cost has went up astronomically. And it's interesting that you ask because I'm old enough to remember the old porcine or pork insulin. Now, we really have, through, uh, frankly, innovations in the pharmaceutical industry, we have a lot better forms of insulin. You know, we have intermediate-acting, short-acting, long-acting. We've made them where they're 
they're human analogs, so we don't have the old antibodies that you used to get for the porcine insulin. So they are much better now. There's no question about it. And then the other thing that's had tremendous advances, insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors. You know, with a continuous glucose monitor now uh, that you change every four days, you can actually just hold your cell phone out and see what your glucose is in real time. So people have much better access to technology. And this is one area of therapeutics where the technology and the pharmacology have really meshed to, to make a lot of advancements. There's no doubt about it. So people that want to stay very stringent in their glucose control have those opportunities now. I know different states have taken different approaches to this issue. Did you consider alternatives and why did you take the path you did? Well, we did look at some other alternatives, but I think caps on the copays seem to be the fairest way that we could come up with. And frankly, that seems to be what a lot of the states are doing. So that seemed to be a very fair system for our underinsured. That seemed to help them the most. If they have insurance, but maybe it's not the greatest in the world, but now there's a cap on the copays. I understand a biosimilar or generic form of insulin was approved last summer. How does that affect the situation? Significantly or maybe not so much? I think not as much as what people let on. It, it, if it's a, an equivalent biosimilar, it really should work as well. And now, discouragingly, the cost of generics has gone up very high now. And honestly, it may not be that much different than the branded material. But as far as the efficacy, the biosimilars uh, should be equally uh, effective with the brand name products. Given your long experience dealing with this issue, what's your most pressing concern around insulin? My most pressing concern is that people get access and education. That, that's the key thing because really the, the, the advances in the technology have been enormous in my 40 years in medicine, just, just enormous. I know we are all quick to blame the pharmaceutical industry and, and they, there's probably some reasons for that. But in this instance, they really have moved the needle. So we've got to get greater adoption of what they have really come up with because pumps and continuous glucose monitors and, and, and just all the, the new forms of insulin, we really can keep people under excellent control. And the advantage for all of us to do that is you don't see all the end organ damage that you see from diabetes. So you don't hopefully see the, the, the heart disease, the, the cerebrovascular disease, the hypertension, the, the diabetic ketoacidosis. The list just goes on and on of things that we should be able to avoid given what we've got now. We love to talk about lessons learned on this podcast. As we wrap up, I wonder if you could share some advice with your colleagues around the country who might be tackling this challenge themselves. The biggest thing is this was a terribly bipartisan effort. I mean, there was really no partisan politics in this. Every legislator in every state has numerous diabetic patients. So that, the, the, you know, the, don't think that anybody is not without a constituency in their districts 
that would benefit from this. Don't be afraid to tackle this issue because it, it's needed. And then a lot of the people say, well, you know, but it's, it costs some money and you know, insurance rates may go up. You know, we didn't really get any pushback from the insurance companies. And I'll tell you why. Because it's the old pay me now or pay me later theory. Is I think they realize that if they can get better adaptation of the newer technology into patients' hands and they'll use it, yeah, it may cost them a little bit more up front if you're the insurance company. But down the road, all the savings that accumulate from not having all this end organ failure, you know, diabetes is number one cause for kidney transplantation, from renal failure, all of that, dialysis, just the savings down the road are enormous compared to the small cost now. So uh, I think this is a bill that, that, you know, health industry and and insurance industry can both kind of get behind and, and, and both but people of all political spectrums can get behind this. So we, we really didn't run into a lot of headways. As a matter of fact, I was I was surprised how really we didn't need any opposition from the insurance industry. So it's it's uh, this is one of those bills that I would just urge my colleagues around the country not to be afraid to take on. Delegate Rohrbeck, thanks so much for sharing your perspective on this topic. Take care. I'll be back right after this with Representative Michael Howard of Minnesota to talk about how he approached this issue in his state. Rely on State Legislature's news on the NCSL website for the freshest takes on people, places, and policy. Find out what states are doing about the biggest issues of the day. And check out the Across the Aisle and My District features for compelling stories of bipartisanship and special places and events. Make SLN your daily go-to for all the hottest legislative topics and trends. Just click on the News tab on the NCSL website, www.ncsl.org. Representative Howard, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I spoke with Delegate Matthew Rohrbeck from West Virginia earlier in the show, and he explained the legislation in his state. I wonder if you could tell our listeners how you got involved in this issue and uh, the key aspects of the legislation there in Minnesota. You know, I really didn't know much about insulin or uh, care for diabetics until I picked up a newspaper and read a story uh, from my own neighborhood, from my own community, and heard the story about Alex Smith, who at the age of 26 aged off his parents' health insurance. He was a type 1 diabetic and could not afford the insurance to cover his insulin and decided to pay for it out of pocket. Alec began rationing his insulin and he passed away at the age of 27, unable to afford a medication that he needed uh, to survive. It's a terrible tragedy. It should not ever happen in this country. Working with Alex's parents, Nicole and James, uh, we set out to, to pass a law here in Minnesota that really led with the premise no one should ever lose their life because they cannot afford the insulin they need to survive. And that's what our bill accomplishes in a variety of mechanisms. Well, it's interesting how people come to this issue in different ways. And I wonder, as you became interested in this and came to understand what the history of insulin affordability was in your state, how has it changed? Is it, is it a lot different now than it was a couple decades ago? Well, it's a, it's a great question because in some, in some sense, the insulin that uh, folks use to manage their diabetes, that hasn't changed very much at all. 
in the last 20 years. Essentially, uh, the same insulin uh, that, that folks use to manage their, their diabetes, you know, in the, in the 1990s is the insulin that you'd use now. But what has changed is the price. We've seen a 1,200% increase in the list price of insulin. It's tripled in the last 10 years, so much so that a vial of insulin, the list price that used to be about $20, $30 is now uh, well over $300. We could do a whole podcast on the, the sort of broken nature of our prescription drug system in this country. But at, at the end of the day, the problem is that three insulin manufacturers control the global supply of, of, of insulin. And these are behemoths that have uh, realized billions in profits and, and frankly coordinated over the years to, to continue to increase the price of insulin. And, you know, they have a captive market. If you have type 1 diabetes, you need insulin to survive. It is like air. It is like water. And so it's just been something that's went up and up and up to the point that uh, Minnesotans and Americans are are choosing what's not in their best health interest because they simply can't afford it. Well, given that marketplace, I wonder what kind of challenges or obstacles you face there in Minnesota as you try to get this legislation enacted. Uh, we did face opposition in part because one of the principles that we entered into when we, we, we fought for Alex's law is that we really believed that the insulin manufacturers that have profited as folks have struggled to afford their insulin, that they had a, a role in this solution. They've increased the price to a point that it's completely unaffordable. They need to have uh, a stake in the game to solve this problem. And so under our law, uh, we said that those manufacturers, uh, they need to either provide the insulin as part of this insulin safety net program or pay for it basically to make sure that those that have profited are participating in the solution. And you can bet we did face some opposition from the drug manufacturers with that approach. Now, I know some different states have taken different approaches. In fact, I think West Virginia took a different approach than, than Minnesota did. And I wonder uh, why you went the way you did, why you thought that would work best for the, for the folks in Minnesota. Well, there, there's a couple different ways states have uh, focused on insulin affordability. One tool has been price caps on in insurance plans. And you know, that's, a, that's a valid tool in that if you have insurance, you know, to, to cap an amount. So we have dependability. So folks that they walk into the pharmacy, they can know that they're going to be able to afford their insulin. We started in Minnesota really looking at Alex's situation. He's somebody that sort of fell through the cracks and that he earned just enough income where the health insurance plans that were available to him were not affordable. Yet his income did not afford him. He was a, a restaurant manager, did not afford him the ability to really afford the, the massive out-of-pocket costs and so we wanted to first start with a safety net, making sure that if you were in an emergent need of insulin, you could walk into your pharmacy, you could get a supply of insulin, no matter what, whether you're insured, whether you're uninsured, and create that true safety net uh, as a life-saving measure. All along, we sort of said, this should be the bare minimum. You know, in a sense, it, th this law should be the bare minimum and that we should ensure that no one loses their life because they can't afford it. In a lot of ways, states should be employing multiple tools, both what we've employed here in Minnesota and what other states have done on the insurance side. As you look forward, is cost the biggest concern about insulin or do you have concerns about supplies or other materials that people need? What, what's your, what would be your biggest concern uh, going forward on this? 
It, it really feels like the cost has been driving a lot of the conversation for the medication for insulin over the last couple of years. And I'm really grateful to see states all across the country sort of pick up the mantle of the, the amazing leadership of Nicole uh, Smith-Holt and, and sort of our advocates that are pushing this. But as folks are looking at it, it is beyond cost. I mean, one of the things that is a driver of cost uh, to manage diabetes is the cost of supplies, like a continuous glucose monitor, which uh, the advances in technology in recent years has greatly helped patients manage their diabetes. Unfortunately, what we're hearing is that the highest level of technology, these monitors are also uh, growing incredibly expensive to the point where some folks are choosing a lesser method of, of management that's not something their doctor would prefer, but they have to choose something that's less expensive. We should look at that as well. We're in the process of drafting legislation here in Minnesota. It, it feels like a, a good evolution in that we've seen caps on the price of insulin, and I think we should look at caps on some of the cost of supplies as well. It shouldn't be unaffordable to manage a, a disease like type 1 diabetes that is uh, if you're not on top of it, you're going to end up in an emergency room or worse. That's just not a, an outcome we should accept for, for anyone. Well, as we get ready to wrap up here, one thing we always like to ask our guests is lessons learned. What would you share with other legislators across the country if they're taking on this issue, trying to craft legislation? The number one lesson I learned is the power of your constituents leading a fight there is no way we would have been successful going up against these mega drug uh, companies and special interests if not for really a handful of mighty advocates like Nicole and several other uh, Minnesotans that came, shared their stories of their families, personal stories. And, you know, intentionally, we let those stories lead the public discussion. And it was incredibly powerful. And it was that public pressure that, that built the pressure on the legislature uh, to take action. Crafting a deal behind closed doors is not the way to be successful against big special interests. It's to have a conversation out in the public domain. And so my biggest advice is uh, to lean on the stories of your constituents, work hand in hand. Individual stories can be a very powerful force uh, to, to get legislation across the finish line. Yeah, I'd agree. A well-told story uh, from the right people can be an incredibly effective persuader for, for legislators. Representative Howard, thanks for sharing your experience and insight on this issue. Take care. If you'd like to learn more about this issue, NCSL is tracking the multiple approaches states are taking, and we encourage you to check out NCSL's Prescription Drug Database at ncsl.org. And that concludes this episode of our podcast. We encourage you to review and rate NCSL podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or Spotify. We also encourage you to check out our other podcasts, Legislatures, The Inside Story, and the special series, Building Democracy. Thanks for listening.